0: welcome, patron. 90K credits have been deducted from your account. Please be advised that any thought crime offenses committed within this establishment will result in the immediate termination of your bio-rhythm chip. Enjoy your stay. Wow, that is definitely a loud out intro. I'm going to need to bring that down a little bit i think but uh hello and welcome welcome back to hyper podcastism yeah this, that is a long intro i gotta i gotta definitely fix that <laughs> oh well i'm not gonna worry about it right now but uh welcome back to hyper podcastism i'm your host borzoi and uh joining me as usual are nike and alex McNabb. we're gonna be moving towards a more bite-sized format no more of these uh, four-hour baudrillard episodes <laughs> <laughs> Where even even my co-hosts are wondering are we done yet as we're as we're recording um, we're gonna try just two hours gonna, I, I, oh whoops two and a half i had Three. i had the i had the uh the outro queued up for some reason uh, i guess we're done the outro was right, playing, so i guess we're done guys right, <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean by bite size i guess but no um try to keep it to 60 to 90 minutes and um, but we'll go kind of bit by bit through a work Try some different things. The the format of, of doing a whole work at once is great if we if you have a lot of time. None of us have that, so we're not doing no. that anymore. Uh, no. So we're going to do uh, Wang Huning's America Against America, and the the reason being is that when Stryker and I tried to do an episode on it, somebody pointed out, well, you guys didn't really talk about the book, and they were correct. Part of the problem being I, I read part of part one, and that was – it so didn't really have a lot to say so oh today we're going to be covering parts one two and three for people who aren't familiar with this work this is uh i probably should have done some background research into him all i know is that he's a professor in china he spent some time in the united states and this book was published in 1991 as i recall and he's kind of considered the uh, one of the main intellectual forces behind what's called the xi jinping thought and you gotta kind of get an idea for for why that is when you read this book. Um, gentlemen, do you have any initial thoughts on what you've read so far?
1: Uh, it looks like he's having to sort of toe the orthodox Marxist line a little bit, which is fine. Yeah. Like, like the analysis that they have is not entirely wrong, so that's okay. But you you can tell he's having to sort of uh, stick to like the established doctrine on that. Yeah, you get you
0: get you. If, you get strongly like a vibe of, um, especially there's some dated aspects of it. I kind of chuckle a bit when he talks about Reagan and Bush and yeah. H. W. Bush quite a bit. I mean, like, but that's that's the time period. This is this is written in. So there's some elements that are very forward thinking, and then there's some elements that are very rooted in time and can kind of throw you off a little bit just because it's like, I don't know, it was like 30 years ago, and this one specific thing he's referencing isn't really relevant anymore, but...
1: Yeah, yeah, he talks a lot about the Japanese, especially in this first section yeah. here, which I thought was pretty interesting. But which I, I don't know how much of that is, is due to the tension between the Chinese and Japanese as, uh, like, just a constant thing, and how much of this is just because at that time period, yes, Japan was a very strong economy that was, was definitely doing a lot of competition in the United States.
0: It was a bit of both, but Nikkei, um, did you have any thoughts? I know when we were talking in the chat earlier, you were having some issues with the translation. The The translation we're using is the uh, amateur translation, at least the one that I'm using, is the one that Angela Nagel linked to on her sub stack. Um, but Nikkei, did you have any initial thoughts?
2: Yes. Uh, I I think it is a matter of the translation work, and perhaps it could have benefited from an editor doing a, you know, a once-over, because there are parts you know they're just little sentences that stick out and sort of ruin the flow of a paragraph where something is repeated uh and the redundancy is i actually really off-putting it's like it's it I, sort of forced me to reread it only to realize that you know it was not something like additional it was a redundancy and i i asked a friend about
1: it. this because he's, he's a bit of a linguist, and he said, and I quote, I think they reduplicate morphemes in contexts where we wouldn't. Yes, Mandarin has far fewer possible syllables in English, so repetition makes sense
2: informatically.
1: Gosh, <laughs> that was,
2: that was the response I got. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's what happened here, just because we had such literal repetition, uh, you, but perhaps. You do,
0: you, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, this is obviously somebody who has a pretty good grasp of English but whoever I think put it together obviously isn't English is not their first language is the the gist I get from it it's 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 noticeable in very subtle ways at times I used to you'll see this with um with ESL students oftentimes where they do a direct translation of something into english but with their syntax and the, so yeah. i mean for example english the most basic example and you'll see this a lot with, with uh, children is uh english is subject subject verb object i eat food i drink beer but uh you know if a child is like in i think chinese i'm going to assume chinese says the same uh syntax as korean and japanese because you see this with them is that it's uh they Theirs is subject, object, verb. So a, a first-time English student will go, will write down, I, food, eat. So, and then, you know, they're supposed to learn the grammar. They're supposed to evolve with that. But if English is not your first language, there's just certain things you can't immediately yeah. into part, part it. Of the, and so it kind of it bleeds through a little bit.
1: Part of the issue, though, is English is just a gay language. Like, in Latin, <laughs> you can't mix up that order. Like, you can change that order around if you want.
0: Well, did you ever see the Did you ever see the thing about um and this is kind of the funny way that language is intuitive this is a tangent but I think it's kind of an interesting tangent is that there's actually rules to how you use adverbs that, that basically we're not aware of because we just it, we just we intuit that as native English speakers but for for people who are ESL they have they have to learn these actual rules of the order in which you use adverbs Okay. have you guys ever encountered that before? No. Let me see if I can find the, uh, let's see here, the adverb ordering rule. Let me see if I can find that. It's, uh, it's this is a tangent, but I thought that was it was kind of interesting because I saw it come up recently. Uh, oh yeah, so the order of adverbs is uh, you manner, place, frequency, time, purpose. So if you have multiple adverbs in, in a sentence, you have to basically order them that way. And these are oh, rules yes. that we Oh yeah. in.
2: I have encountered that. I mean, yeah. It's it seems sort of arbitrary when you first hear this rule. But then, like, somebody gives an example oh, of how it. this works. And it, yeah. it's like, oh, wait, yeah. No, this this does yeah. feel right.
1: And what, I don't know why it feels right. Arrive. Yeah, that's, that makes total sense.
0: Yeah. So that's that could be. Anyways, I guess to get this back onto what we're talking about. I mean, that's I can understand why people have have difficulty with this work just from it's because it's it's an interesting work, but I wouldn't call it an enjoyable read because you you definitely get the sense like oh, this is somebody this was not edited this was not edited by somebody who was doing this with like we're gonna do this, this big production and make sure like this is oh. very readable for English readers. I, I feel like. Just,
1: I feel like I'm just reading like sort of a very straight, strict uh, translation of the original Chinese. Like this is probably pretty yeah. close to what he was actually.
0: That was my putting was It's all. It's also, and I guess to be fair to it, it's a lot more loose than a bang post. So <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I didn't really have a problem with translation.
1: <laughs> if anything, I thought it gave me a little bit of insight into the, the differences between us and the Chinese.
2: The other yeah. thing I um, wanted to say, starting out of my impressions, the author seems to really conclude a lot from the things he's personally being shown so it's it's clear that as he's on this uh educational travel to compile notes for this book he puts a lot of stock into the examples that he sees and he does note that these uh these examples aren't necessarily reflective of a generalizable uh whole but uh it still leaves me wanting uh for things that are more generalizable uh and to that point the age of this work is was very clear to me i mean i there was a lot to it that stood out mostly because it just seemed so alien
1: I don't know. Some of this stuff has come back around. Like in the second chapter, of Manhattan Chinatown, he says, uh, "So I heard from a friend that once you arrive in New York, you will feel a sense of terror. The crime rate
0: here is extremely high." <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that, that's that. just
0: that, that's just kind of a timelessness of America. <laughs> I mean, that's we, like this. One of the most interesting things to me is, and I can. I've never really had a lot of exposure with the Chinese, but I have dealt with East Asians in their own countries. And for so, they're very polite people, and you often can't really get to the heart of what they actually think and feel. But when you are able to kind of pierce that a little bit, a lot of like, – they find us to be extremely – bewildering that's where some of this you know the perception of, of asians being brutally honest comes from is i don't even know if it's like a brutal honesty it's just the fact that americans are so used to having to live you know under several different layers of lies and deception that it's jarring when somebody just asks you a straight pointed question it's like why do you do, like we're just, we have these as well, these yeah. assumptions that you're just you're just supposed to that we expect other people to understand it's like no that that's this is that's the one theme i found in the first three parts is that there is that americans have certain assumptions about ourselves that we just think are obvious and he's trying to understand us on that level and he's trying to the funny thing is like he's trying to understand it from a very intellectual level it's like well there's got to be a reasoning behind this and some of it's on point some of it's you won't understand if you don't understand the Jewish aspect of our culture. So <laughs> yeah, he it
1: says in this first section of my analysis in this book shows that the powerful groups that dominate politics are above the common people. I'm like, yep. huh, who could these powerful groups be?
0: Okay. Yeah. And he, he notes that, but he sees it as like, well, like as though, and this is something that kind of comes up uh, that, uh, a lot of Asians just don't understand Like they, they think that there is this integration like that. We're aware of how the powerful like of our, of our various powerful groups. And it takes kind of like being able to be inside and outside at the same time to really understand like how much the average person does not actually understand how the power system in this country functions. So they the, a lot of outsiders will look at it and think, like, well, we have we must be aware of it on some level it's like you would actually be surprised by how much people are not aware of it. Europeans have a better understanding of it. I mean they, I it recalls I recall the um the Evelyn quote about uh that American Americans being the re, the refutation of the of the of the Cartesian uh um of the of the Cartesian axiom. I think therefore I am that Americans uh Americans do not think yet there they are. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah.
1: I guess we should just plunge straight into this.
0: Thing. Yeah, I guess the only other th- like initial thoughts I had is that the uh, I'll just read from my notes here. That the work is prescient, but also an interesting snapshot of the late 80s as America seemed truly ascendant. While what was called the communist world seemed to be waning badly with the Soros funded democracy movement in China and the problems of the Soviet Union. Huning also comments on the seeming integration Japan had with the USA, which is telling given that they were historical rivals. Mm-hmm. And, uh the the first thing that stands out to me i guess i, I didn't break down my notes in the first section very well because this was before we i decided to do this project so the first thing that really stands out to me in the first section that huning talks about is he, he this is written brought by someone who's concerned about the binary way of the chinese approach innovation versus tradition that the two are opposed to each other what what he saw in america is that we view innovation as tradition while the chinese were often suspicious of that
1: yeah yeah well i guess the other thing should mark on real fast like the america against america is like he's talking about the contradictions and tensions between themes in america sort of like a yin-yang like duality or dualism
2: well i think what uh what he's really like saying there is There's a lot of ideas about an idealized America that probably most Americans believe themselves and the reality. And so, I mean, this is something he states right in the beginning. And so it it sets the stage for this book to be kind of schizophrenic in a way, that there are ideals at work and he attributes a lot of power to them, that having these ideals exist is a is a meaningful difference in society but that the ideals of what this country believes about itself don't always align with what the reality is on the ground
0: yeah yeah there's a there's a meta commentary you can make um because this this on this book because this work's being talked about quite a bit recently and the uh, the main reason it is that way is because we're so used to living under this kind of pro-american or america neutral Paradigm, or that anybody who's anti-American has these very, um, I don't know, like 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 these uh, cartoonish like views of America. And this is a work of somebody who is positioned to create a power that's contra to America. But this really isn't an ideological work; it's more of a travel log, more than anything. Yeah, and it's it, it, these are a collection of thoughts of somebody who's trying to make sense of what they saw in the United States of all these contradicting but aspects and seeing if he, he can he try and find a lot. common threat in that. Yeah. He learns a lot from his travels and he makes some,
1: some interesting examples, uh, some stuff I had not even considered before. Like he compares, I think the Amish to, Oh God, what was that other sect that I'd never the even Amana? heard of? Yeah. yeah I'd never Society. even heard about them. Yeah. I thought yeah, that, was that was a very was... interesting section where he's basically saying, you know, the, the Amish were able to sort of freeze themselves in time, but the Amana did not and they were effectively destroyed by that
2: and he doesn't offer and, like a real uh you know satisfying reason yeah. why other than a change of beliefs well they didn't yeah. you know keep their young uh tied to the uh belief system all well, like don't you think it would be uh relevant to explain like how that happened but you know there's it's one book he can only describe so much so that's like one of the examples where it's like there, there's a lot left to be desired where, you, where he presents these two uh, contrasting things and, you know, their differences just boils down to, like, life happened differently. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and he and tees it. it up, but then he doesn't go the, all the way with it, yeah.
0: And I think that's where, like, kind of his age and background explains a lot of the stuff, because uh, Long hooning was born in 1955, so he would have been a teenager, a young man, in the, during the cultural revolution, when a lot of this destruction of traditions with the suspicion of it, you know, being counter revolutionary, this, these are, those would have been formative years for him. So he's coming to the United States as a, as a man who's just beginning to mature, who has these young youthful, youthful memories. And he's, that's why like the the focus on what is American tradition is so prevalent in the first part of this book, because he comes from a from a time period where China was actively uprooting a lot of its own traditions on an ideological level. And the way that tradition was treating the United States is was in stark contrast to the way that China was setting these things up, is that it's you know it's tradition yeah. versus innovation. And he sees that's not the case in the United States and that there's these the, uh, these little communities were allowed to flourish, which would yeah, have been like, a, like a much Amish. different. They got, ass- yeah. yeah,
1: they got special accommodations and were essentially yeah. allowed to be like sort of a nature preserve. And that was stark contrast to what was happening in China.
0: And the Chinese have they they recognize 56 different ethnic groups as a you know component of China, but like a lot of that stuff is is the result of just kind of like the general history that China had like conquered these various regions they couldn't get rid of these other groups. The only time they ever did stuff like that was like when they genocided the Jungars, which you know if you've never heard of the Jungars, well there you go. And that's <laughs> now you know what happened to them. The Chinese I basically wiped have, them yeah. off the map completely. They actually the the Uyghurs uh, the Uyghurs uh, benefited from the Jungar genocide, but um. Oh, so the a, these
1: another genocide i'd never heard of before
0: yeah so these these groups are, have just been there in china the idea of like allowing them to flourish with their own little planned communities and all that is a, would be a very odd notion to the chinese and that's just because they also don't have kind of a frontier culture at the same time they've conquered but they the idea of like being these frontier people's very different in their history and culture yeah. And civilization so this that to encounter something like the amana society and the amish this is the most fascinating thing to him this idea like you have these groups that come here and and then you have this political power that just allows them to do whatever they want as long as they don't challenge the the status quo that's something that you don't ever see in china so he he starts this off uh uneven land number
1: one doubt of american manufacturing and it's like all of the priors that he has with the Japanese people are on full display here. I have this little uh, thing highlighted. Uh, although many foreigners find the Japanese unlovable, this economic strength makes one impressed. <laughs> so far- foreigners don't like the Japanese, apparently.
0: Oh yeah, I mean this would have been. I mean, China and Japan have been the w- had been rivals for 150 years. So I mean that's. I mean, that the anti-Japanese aspect is going to be is going to be the most dated kind of part of this just because, I mean, like, there's still tensions there. But this is when Japan was the the economic power in that China. China had not yet come into its own. Not even close. So, I mean, we're yeah. still talking
2: about a point in time where, like, uh, think to some of the cultural touchstones of this, you know, late 80s era. People are talking about starvation in China as a. Yep as like a major issue, like famine. I, uh, people I, are still think of China as like a place where poor people live. And like, you know, it's squalid. It's not right. until like after the nineties, really, that you see this China as a superpower across yeah. people's mind. It's not a superpower I, at this point.
0: And he's I mean, coming as only- a
2: scholar from a non superpower country.
0: And this was less than 10 years into the one child, into the one child policy in China, which was an attempt to try and get that, you know, the, they're very rural, rural and poor population under control. Um, that uh, sort of shows
2: up as a theme here in this first section, uh, particularly yeah. is the you see the word management come up a lot uh, and it, it's kind of hard to parse out what he what management means to him. Um, you can only make assumptions because he doesn't offer a definition. He takes, you know, the definition for granted uh, but we can assume he just means you know the mechanisms of social control and like things that allow life to progress and you know go about as they're supposed to in a in a functional way uh he notes the the divide between urban and rural populations and how this is a significant marker of development to him, and I'm sure a lot of uh you know scholars agree on that point but he contrasts the uh, proportion of Americans in uh, rural settings to that of Chinese. And I think, what, they were like inverse?
1: Yeah, 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 because he was saying that uh, China is like, eighty at this time of this writing. it was 80%, 80% rural yeah. versus like the United States. I forget what percentage he was quoting, but it's, it's, it is literally the inverse. It's like to less than 20%.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that way, he's sort of defining it as an opposite, Uh, that, okay, you have this urban heavy population in America and look what they have, you know, been able to achieve. And I think that difference, you know, weighs heavily on his mind as he's writing this out and thinking of all the contrasts between the United States and China
0: yeah and he's also I and mean, this is a time period as well where this idea like that democratization will lead to you know to to better economic conditions like you had you had the democra- the you know the source funded dem- democracy movement that was uh at the time kind of being planted into china i i forget exactly this he was i think he might have been in the United States when Tiananmen Square happened. Uh, but he writes uh, like as a contrast to kind of like the Asian societies that the United States was was also propping up. These two major topics have become hot topics of discussion this year. One argument is that economic modernization cannot be achieved without political democracy. One thing that counters this is that Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore and South Korea did not have political democracy during their economic takeoff stage. Hong Kong was under colonial rule. Taiwan was under one party dictatorship and South Korea was under military intervention in fact actually the, the the south korean government was the was pak jong-hee who was kind of like had like did like a national socialist style quasi that yeah government in in south korea for a number of the years that he was in power though he also empowered a lot of the corporations at that at that time but he notes that like, this is being talked about as though like you know you you have democracy it's going to lead to You know, economic stability and economic growth, and this is at a time period when China is still trying to find its legs. And he's seeing that that's not the case, though. That just doesn't – this is where some of the kind of like the more orthodox Marxist analysis that he has kind of comes in because he's trying to make sense like how does a country like the United States, which seems really dysfunctional, economically function – and in and you have all these other Asian countries that are also able to economically function in spite of the fact that that according to what Americans are saying, this is what you need to be an economic powerhouse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he sort of uh, seizes upon the the incidents after the Second World War to say that we kind of incidentally came into all this power. Like it was just a happy circumstance that led to the United States to essentially becoming economic powerhouse after World War Two.
0: One thing he says in, in – uh, this is the se- third section of part one. He talks about the four Cs of what uh, what Americans have, yeah. uh, which is car, <laughs> call, yeah, which I is understand. phone, computer, and card. And he sees this as kind of uh, – he, he looks at this from a commodification analysis as well. He says another major characteristic of American society or American culture is its high degree of commodification. It can be said that this is a typical capitalist flowery world in this typical capitalist society. Almost anything can become a commodity, from human flesh, air, abstract ideas, to all kinds of concrete objects. All are commodified. This is why Marx's analysis of capitalist society, in which he regarded commodities as the cells of this mode of production, was a true insight. In today's capitalist society, this feature is more fully developed, although there are many differences in the form of expression. This is something that uh, many of the the postmodernist thinkers and and Christopher Lash, uh, they picked up on as well as that. Americans are marinated in this culture of capitalism and just treat it as the as the course of things. You know, you hear this you might hear this from people who repeat these kind of slogans like that the only color that matters is green, for instance. But the idea that you mm-hmm. can reduce literally everything to a transactional ownership nature is deeply disturbing to anyone who is not American. And this is a theme yep. that comes up a couple of times in the first three sections that we read.
2: I'd yeah, like yeah. to read here the Two separate paragraphs he have he has specifically on card out of the four Cs because I I think it's the most uh, interesting take um, you know the, the least um, obvious ones to us because I think it's something you know we take for granted the most out of all of these Card here is not the Chinese concept of card. There are some cards in China such as briquette card, egg card, daily necessities card, vegetable card etc, which are all made of paper. The card we are talking about here is a plastic card with magnetic tape on the back to store information. Such cards, too many to mention, are credit cards, money cards, library cards, phone cards, and ID cards. Each of these cards has different kinds. New cards are still emerging, and the newspapers once carried a story about a new service by an airline that offers free first-class treatment with the purchase of a certain number of tickets, with the voucher being one such card. I flew United Airlines from San Francisco to Iowa, and the ticket was actually a card similar to this. The card and the computer are linked together. As the card is inserted into a certain computer, you can do the relevant things, such as withdrawing money, saving money, checking the number of their savings, uh, can be used to solve the card and the computer uh, without having to find a bank clerk. Almost everyone who has a job takes out a wallet, which has a large number of cards. Because of the card, the wallet also changed. There are several bags inside specifically for the card. I'm afraid the leather wallets made in China now cannot be exported to the United States or other Western countries because there is no place to put these cards. Uh, the <laughs> there are four. These are the four Cs, which is important as uh what is important is the role they play in social organization and social management skipping to the paragraph on cards he says cards which symbolize the management of the whole society frees people from the management of physical objects people and things into symbolic management
0: hmm. yeah and that's a gr- that's actually an excellent point Let's these are the in, the mo- the best insights in the book where it's stuff that we you know we're used to people trying to you know tease out what it means to be an American, what is this, you know, trying to un- make sense of our, of our perplexing existence. But the, it's these little things within kind of, especially within the technological sphere that we just don't really think about because it's just become an integral part of our lives. But yeah, I mean, like imagine, like imagine walking out the door without your wallet, without your cards, trying to do anything without, without, without your or cards.
1: Imagine not having a car. Cause he says not having a car in America is like not having legs. And the part I thought was kind of funny is he says, I I went to a professor's house at Stanford University and there were three cars (laughs) like he's like amazed that this uh, this professor has three vehicles and and every family has at least one car. We
2: were doing car cards, cars. He's talking about the cars. Yeah, and, cars and we all know I why that parts. one is a, of a particular importance to McNabb here, right. but uh, <laughs> I think right. I think that one is already better understood by most people, especially our audience, like, you know, the interplay between the development of the highway system and the automobile industry. I mean, that's, that's sort of well understood at this point, but cards is a symbol of management that Frees people from the management of physical objects into symbolic management.
1: Yeah, that's a that's postmodernist I mean, I, point.
2: I wish he would wish he uh had more of a postmodernist streak to him so he would go into more detail about that. But um this is, uh, to me it's this is, it's feels like this is a uh a relevant point about like what it takes to actually complete a transaction. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. We are talking about the cards then. Okay. Sorry, I was just getting confused when when McNabb was talking about the, about vehicles. Well, you need yes. yeah, No. Card to
1: buy the car. I
0: yeah, you the- need the <laughs> card to buy the. car. But it's the when I so with the wallet, you know you you forget your wallet like even if you have like a few bucks in your pocket you're still going to be extremely limited in anything you can do in the society like the amount of well, heck, documentation transactions and everything yeah like the amount of documentation that you need to keep within this wallet is i mean yeah, the idea you got to have your vaccine card now oh yes. yeah that's just it's just another card that adds to this it is in the symbolic management Again, it's just we think that like, well, this is just the natural course of things. Like, and these things and we also tell ourselves these things make things convenient for us. That life's just easier this way. Like, oh, you don't need to do a bunch of stuff. Like, you got, you just got your card. You swipe your card. You show your card, and like that's it. That's all you got to do. But it's, then it's try to try to live your life it, without doing that.
2: It, it's also interesting to think how uh, over the years, and you know. All of these four C's have quickly become one. Um yep. And I guess the, the car is the winner out in terms of the, the things that, you know, have been of these C's that have been consolidated into. Uh,
0: now yeah, I mean, human life. And a card human and all, human society is now our civilization is constructed around the car the vehicle it's this is this is the classic point i always bring up when trying to kind of explain what jacques a meant with technique in the technological society is that man does not shape tools tools shape man and so with with the with with not just It's not the invention of the vehicle. It's the propagation of the vehicle that now necessitates that your cities be constructed around the vehicle. So where once people could just walk outside their door and go wherever, now you might need like a dirt road that makes it easier to walk on or, or what have you. That doesn't exist anymore. Now you have to make sure you do not walk into traffic you, that or that your suburb is now constructed to create an artificial walking space. So that you have somewhere to you know like enough space to walk around without going insane
1: yeah yeah because these these uh this type of transportation system essentially converts the entire country into a massive desert connected by like these high-speed corridors like these railways for for automobiles i noticed that too where where i live for example there's a store that you want that everybody wants to go to and i live in a small town but you can't reach the store without walking out on a two-lane highway against traffic there's no sidewalk there, there only needs to be a, a couple thousand feet of, of sidewalk to get to it but it doesn't exist it doesn't exist so now you're shunted out into like this busy street where you're fighting for space with cars and it's, great, it's like that all over america
0: yeah it's a great comparison of calling it a high-speed desert because what are these shopping centers if not just an oasis that's what yeah. it is now
1: yeah it's not it's not a human space it's not a space for people it's a space that has allocation for cars, and it's all car centered. It's not really actually human centered.
2: Hmm. This is the real critique of Breezewood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: not that it's, it's just you know society bad, that
0: car bad, or 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 like like turnpike ugly, which is I mean yes. like Turnpike's Breezewood's. I, I I've been through Breezewood multiple times. It's it's not it's, that. It's, it's really not small. that bad. Like, it's, it's very. And it's brief. also like it makes it just it, like it makes sense as a truck stop. I mean, it just it's it's a
2: no. It absolutely does, but that's working yeah. within the logic of the highway system, it's not within <laughs> the logic of a you know a harmonious uh, yeah nobody, human society. Yeah,
0: you know, nobody wants to live in Breezewood. But we're trying to avoid though everything becoming Breezewood. That's the essential it's, actual. Honestly. Critique
1: this is something that became more real to me, not, not from cycling, cycling. Obviously you have, I have a lot of opinions based on that, but what really got me is whenever I had kids and I wanted to push them in a stroller and I was like, shit, like there, this is a terrible environment to push a kid in a stroller or take a kid on a walk. Like you, you're constantly fighting against massive automobiles. Like it's this, yeah. this entire area, which is supposed to be a quaint little town. It is not friendly for that purpose. it's like, now I see why, way people increasingly just sort of stay inside and they don't they don't go outdoors if they do outdoors they have to get in their vehicle and then drive to a designated space and then leave their vehicle do their activity get back in the Mm. car and then drive back home
0: i had an interesting interesting... go ahead
2: my point's pretty brief it's just that the one of the first rules that uh, a child learns as it relates to exploring the outside world is look both ways before crossing the street and it's just this idea of avoiding death from a from a speeding vehicle that dictates how we the first it's the first dictation on how uh we establish boundaries of things outside of our house and you know how we navigate the world you know beyond our four walls that we've been raised in as babies and now we can walk as kids and the new limits, the new walls are the streets.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, are, I, I, it, it, I've operative. learned that intimately with uh, being a dog owner and now a father is that I I have a dog. I can't let him off leash in, in the city I live in because he's going to get hit by a car most likely. And now I got a kid. And it, once he starts walking, I have to keep an eye on him at all times. So that's just not how it would have been for, for human beings until the last 150 years. Well, not even 150 years, like last 100 years, really
1: yeah so increasingly you're sequestered inside of your vehicle like it's not an option anymore it's mandatory it's mandatory that you stay inside this car and drive it from one location to
0: the next location and then you what you what you end up having is that it's no longer just a vehicle it's no longer like this is the machine and you can actually go look at how old cars used to look it's it was oh this is a pragmatic machine a carriage a motorized carriage that's supposed to get you from point a to point b because it's become such a necessity now that they have been trying to make them into a secondary home because you spend so much time within the vehicle so you need now it needs to become the second home that you own
1: they advertise them differently too if you look back back in the day they were essentially advertising them as as being like powerful as being luxurious like luxury was a big part of, of having a car and it offering you freedom and things and modern advertising doesn't really do that so much instead it's like trying to sell you on all the features and the fact it has like a flat screen tv in the back of the headrest <laughs> stuff like that and autopilot systems which i find very interesting that the the autopilot and driver aid systems are now like the huge marketing thing like so essentially you have managed to take this automobile which is supposed to give you autonomy and freedom and you're turning it into a type of railway vehicle, like a type of personal train with its own little conductor.
0: But you, <laughs> here's the problem though. It's it's you're the you're the conductor, but you're also being distracted by the things that you the the coutrements you put into your little train there. So <laughs> you 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 imagine if you know like imagine if you you know your little train like you're you're the conductor, you're also you know you're also the passenger, and you're trying to enjoy yourself while you're driving the train. Like this is like, no wonder the car. Is so disastrous in terms of a a – from a transportation model.
1: It's terrible. It's like people really – they just want to be in their own train. They want someone to do all the driving for them. But they also want the freedom to leave their house at any hour and then go get like Pop-Tarts or something. Like they want the, the best of both worlds here.
0: Well, think about the absurdity of where they're taking the vehicle now they now we're going towards self driving cars you know what used to be a yeah. self-driving car for the passenger a train yeah that's that's what i'm that's exactly what i'm saying it's that's what you're
2: <laughs> even just a bus
0: yeah yeah the
1: self-driving could just get a fucking train like <laughs> find a rail car it's just like and to touch on the cycling thing for a second people get very mad when they have to pass slower traffic and i'm like but you don't understand, like, that's the point of the automobile. It's it's It gives you autonomy. It allows you to pass. It's not a rail car. It's not a train. Like, it can change lanes and pass. That's the entire fucking point. If you don't like that, then you, you are using the wrong kind of transportation. Like, it it's supposed is- to require some amount of driver involvement. And cars used to be marketed that way, too. And the entire sports car market was about that, about involving the driver in the process of driving the car. And this itself becoming its own sort of experience, its own sort of uh, reason for why you'd want to have one. It's, oh, I it's
0: these as- yeah, but it's these aspects, the, these technological and economic aspects, that makes this a, a fascinating book because of its time period. It means this book is less than ten years after Blade Runner and asks this fundamental question that Blade Runner just kind of assumes that can a society really just become an economic zone and what does it do to the people who live there so like this kind of the stuff like with the four seas we were talking about this is also why he finds the amish bewildering and fascinating because you know him coming from this society that's got this tension of what tradition is and what you do with it and that you have this community that's allowed to flourish here that seems to be in stark contrast to the technological society He, he writes here what is the ancient spirit of life and lifestyle the spirit of Amish life is to adopt anything on the base of its usefulness clothes to protect from the cold but not from beauty Amish once rejected metal buttons as a luxury a symbol of wealth the home may not hang colorful pictures they often hang calendars with monotonous pictures this reflects the spirit of amish life simplicity nature and self sufficiency and this oh. is something that Americans tend to have issues grappling with because we have a non-culture. I'd say we have a non-culture, and yeah. we're taught to be aggressively proud to have a non-culture. We're taught to be as obnoxious and ostentatious as we can possibly be as our identity no matter the form. But everyone yeah. else has sought some way of preserving both the past and its modesties while innovating.
1: Yeah, he, he has a really interesting quote there about uh, – from this we can draw an opinion that if people refuse modernization in the spiritual sphere, it is difficult for modernization to invade them. This phenomenon can be seen in different societies. The real driving force of modernization is the inner world of people. So he, he goes on an entire tangent about how the Amish are essentially just spiritually resi- uh, resistant to, to commodification. like the process of commodifying everything and in, in technological innovation.
2: And he does that, but it, like in the next section, he completely uh, weakens his whole point there with the point about the Amana. Yeah. I mean, I, why why were they not as uh, spiritual spiritually inclined to this resistance it, to modernization?
1: It, it, it seemed like he was he was doing this contrast to show the Amana essentially made a deal with the devil and then destroyed their civilization, but he doesn't quite you know hammer it home like he doesn't he doesn't. Well,
0: I, I, there's a couple quotes because this is actually right with a bunch of a bunch of quotes that I have grouped together here. So from the Amish. Section I have over the years, despite the fact that the Amish have changed in one way or another, the basic spirit of this group has not changed much. It is curious. Why has such a powerful modern civilization failed to influence and transform them? Hasn't Western civilization impacted many very distant peoples? And I think this paragraph is the crux to what's bothering Huning and what he's trying to get like figure out in this book, because he's fascinated by the Amish as they're in. They're in the dead center of liberal dominance, but they have somehow retained who they are, and this drives his ideas. The, the, first of all, this gives him the, the the seed of the idea that there is no inevitability to liberal capitalism and its theater of democracy. It can actually be opposed, but how does one oppose that? So he also writes here, this is a real social phenomenon worth thinking about. In the heart of the modernized world, there is such a group of people who refuse to be modernized. The remoteness is not in the geographical area, but in the spiritual world. I I, I think we got some, one of you already spread this, but yeah, they are voluntarily isolated from modernization. From this, we can draw an opinion that if people refuse modernization in the spiritual sphere, then it is difficult for modernization to invade them this phenomenon can be seen in different societies the real driving force of modernization is in the inner world of people and so then he we're talking about the amana community now so he explores this agrarian socialist utopianism of this community one of the many utopian schemes in american history and he analyzes its failures as being too weak to stand up to the much more powerful force of liberal capitalism but to me the telling paragraph was this the fact that amana is now a national historic preservation site is what makes it most meaningful it teaches that in such an environment any other choice of values becomes history when the prevailing dominant american values will become history depends on whether there is a stronger alternative so he sees now, I think part of the problem he doesn't understand is like the Amish are allowed to exist, and that's kind of one of the things because they're not a threat to the to the to the power structure. But the fact that they have such a spiritual component, at least from the way he's viewing it, to what allows them to maintain their lifestyle. Whereas the Amana system was much more of a, a more political I mean there was a religious component to it but it was it was more of a political incorporation than it was a spiritual traditional community and i think Mm -hmm. that's what he's trying to figure out is like how do you take a people with a strong sense of spirit and tradition and scale them up so they can become an actual viable alternative to this liberal capitalist model because i think that's fundamentally what you know like he's an He's one of these thinkers, he's trying to influence this Xi Jinping thought It's like, how do we oppose this liberal system? What how do we build the alternative? And he's looking at contrasting examples where groups failed in America and where groups thrived in America that provide a blueprint for that. It made me realize I, I, like, and a lot of it, I think, is him this, just like, trying to like think out loud and figure this out. But he's seeing like, yes, it's viable, but how is it viable? Why is it viable? What makes it work?
1: i was reading that that section about the amish i felt a great deal of psychic tension as i realized i was a coward for not being amish because the amish are like (laughs) like well all you have to do is forsake your evil corrupting technology and just work hard like you have to work hard but you will have a meaningful life you'll be healthy you'll have lots of descendants and you'll be enmeshed in a strong community like that's that's the trade and yeah. most of us you, you, are totally not willing to ever make that trade which says more about
0: us you know like and and what the Amish do and like I know I know I, I get that we know a lot of people who have actually had experience with the Amish and you know they they, they were not, this is not to have a romantic view of them but what they do have is they have such a a strong in-group preference and they're able to impart like they're able to impart that upon their young so that when they do let their youth be exposed to the outside world. It's just such an anathema to that youth that the vast majority of them, because the only life that they know is that Amish community, go right back to it. There's yeah. they, they all, fundamentally because they've conditioned you know their community that way and have managed to maintain that inner core so strongly. Okay. When give when they actually offer their youth the choice, the, cho- the youth have no other choice but to return back because. There's nothing for them with the world that they already know. Uh, with the world that they know, there's nothing that the outside world can offer them.
1: Yeah, that's that's one hell of a testament to their civilization. That they're able to do this. They're able to like uh, basically vaccinate their their kids against against uh, global Homo.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what he's trying to figure out. Is like, how do you, how do you scale that up for for a Chinese civilization? That's fine for kind of this um you know this ethno religious group that is is considered benign enough that they're not a compet- competing power to the United States government, to the United States system. It's like they're allowed to exist. They're allowed to perpetuate themselves because they're fundamentally not a, a threat to it. But when you want to be China and you want to scale that, you want, you want to be the actual counterpoint, the other pole, you know, the, the other pole within the world, you got to be able to take that and make that work for a billion you know, a billion person population, how does that work?
1: Now, we will not want to cover this now, obviously, but as you read further in here, he has some very interesting observations about child rearing and how we essentially inculcate like this narcissistic individualism into our children basically from birth due to the, the way that we put our kids into their own separate bedrooms when they're like a few months old. That's very, very different from what Asian civil societies do.
0: The last note I have from part one here is in, in section eight, he talks about in a world of a growing population, agriculture is a lifeline. And you can see that Wang is also concerned about what urbanization does to a country, especially when it's incentivized by a liberal capitalist country yeah. as it destroys its balance. I mean, this is something you and I have talked about McMahon, yeah, yeah, before, yeah, yeah, he that he uses... and this is like actually you can go back to Franklin. Franklin like Benjamin Franklin talks about this in notes um, concerning the increase of in mankind. that basically cities are population shredders
1: yeah and he was talking about uh I think I saw this I linked in the original article about this about that that used the example of a farmer that he stayed with and it's It's really depressing' because it's a farmer who had sent his kid away to college and you get the impression like, yeah, that kid's not coming back <laughs> like yep. you're gonna you're gonna have to sell your farm eventually, like you're not gonna have anybody to to take your place.
0: Yeah, I guess I don't really have anything specific to add to that. Did you have any other thoughts on part one there, uh, Nikkei, before we move on to the ancient political spirit? I didn't. Okay. So section two, part two is the ancient political spirit. Uh, I have an in the first section, in this part he explores the contradictions of American life based on a popular liberal historian's perspectives of America. It was a commager. Um I think this is a summary of commenters thoughts. He because he he spends a bit of time uh, summarizing this, but uh, find authority. Americans find authority and rules and regulations to be a headache and find it insulting and challenging to follow certain rules. There's little to no discipline in school. Parents rarely. Control their children, and children rarely respect their parents. But family life is happy. The military is lax in discipline, but can fight wars. Americans have no apparent respect for the law, but actually respect the rule of law, and the Constitution is the supreme law. And this is, I in this section, I think that's a good kind of preface to this section because one thing he's trying to tease out throughout all of part two is the seeming contradiction between the lives of the average american and the way that the uh, that the political structure in the united states functions because at especially at this time period americans would a lot enough americans still felt like that they were a part of this country that they weren't alienated completely from the rule of law and their government and so they would would have taken great pride in being americans obviously this is not really the case Anymore, But when you have that kind of situation, people still think that the government has their – at least at some level, their interest – like the interests of themselves and, and the country at heart, that you have the way that Americans kind of conceive themselves as freedom-loving but then have this kind of government that seems to act in contrast to that. And he's trying to make sense of this because it doesn't have that kind of top-down authority structure that – Chinese society would have it's it's very this a lot of this you can see that this is an East Asian trying to make sense of how American life works. Yeah, this
1: this section was interesting to me because he starts talking about religion. I have this book called Enchantments of Mammon that I really need to get back to reading. It was holding my interest because it's touching on some of the same stuff. Like he talks about a religion of Calvinistic origin is practical. They're religious but not pious. They no longer believe the dogma that God saves mankind, but are instinctively convinced that salvation is only through work. Denominations were numerous, but were considered different organizations rather than different doctrines. And they could no longer tell the difference between Methodists and Presbyterians. Just they could not see the difference in principle between Republicans and Democrats. I thought that was a, a very interesting little piece of, of commentary. Like he's he's doing kind of a synopsis of some of the stuff I was reading in another book about how like the sort of the Protestant work ethic became converted into essentially like a type of hyper capitalism.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of the Protestant work ethic there. And you that's I and I've noted noted this as well with a lot of I'm gonna discuss this a little bit more with like the mysticism aspect, which I think kind of explains you know, kind of like a lot of the uh, conversions to Eastern Orthodoxy. But even a even the denomination like Catholicism, which should be have some contrast to kind of like the Calvinist Protestantism that founded this country. Actually, you know, like you, you know, this is like to the integralist types out there. It's like no, like the the American Catholic is Protestantized, and you can still you can see this to this day with the way that they approach Americanism. They try to add like a Catholic flavor to it, but this like if you're going to be an American patriot, you can't help but retain some of that Calvinist culture that really kind of founded. This country. I mean, even I he, like, like, even an outsider kind of notices this. I feel like American religion
1: in general and this uh, proliferation of dominations—it's essentially just like market branding, and it's a yeah. Type well, of, that's that's the of
0: demystification capitalism. he talks. That's a de- like, we're going to talk about that later on in part three. But like, that's the that's the demystification aspect that Wang Huning talks about. Everything gets like reduced to this transactional nature, and part of that is because of this. He, he talks about individualism a lot as the culture of America, this individualization. Well, when you individualize people, then there's nothing to say you can't break them down even further into these atomized components. And that is going to essentially become a transactional nature. This is the, the problem he's grasping with is that American society to an outsider does not seem to have a in essence to it. You can break down. American uh, American aspects into a lot of different components. You can break it down to a thousand million different little moving parts, but it doesn't seem to create a functional whole. It doesn't cr- seem to create a single whole. And that's yeah. an odd thing to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, cuz it's, it's like it's essentially like a core uh, core of like nihilism. <laughs> like yeah. just Yeah, it's so it's like the 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 anti-ideological system.
0: It's like a a mosaic that actually doesn't have that doesn't actually form anything like there's no actual picture there. It's like an abstract mosaic, I guess.
1: Yeah. The other thing that that happens with Americanism, it's all all about taking premises and just making these things like subconscious and just turning them into something you don't even examine anymore. It's just like embedded into the into the culture. Like, yeah, well, of course, the best way to solve any problem is to use corporate competition. That's how we do things. How dare you suggest we investigate another method of of handling our problems?
0: One thing I found interesting as well is that he the way that uh, he approached how Americans approach history. This is in uh, section two of this part. Uh, the United States focuses on preserving and protecting these physical textbooks. He's talking about like our like. Yeah. The, like The historical landmarks and all that kind of stuff and all the history there. They are managed by dedicated staff and provide the amenities needed for public access, such as parking, kiosks, restaurants and various types of instructions. The facilities for the exhibitions are also of a high standard with screen rooms in almost every location where visitors can see specially filmed films and slides. Things that are not considered cultural relics by the Chinese are carefully protected. So in the future, Americans will have a history because it is now being preserved to the fullest extent. They know they have no history, and they treasure anything that has a little historical value. In a country that is too rich in history, things of much greater value than that are cast aside. And I think he's actually talking like in in this. That's an interesting paragraph to me because I think he's actually talking less about the Americans than he is about his own people. That's a very reflective paragraph because. In Chinese history, like it, it's such a long thing with so many different dynasties and periods, and in fact, actual period, like they've had more than one period where they've even destroyed their own history as a idea of wi- wiping the slate clean. Like this is like that's how long Chinese history is, is that they've been able to forget their history more than we once, or at least the slate attempt to
1: seven times, yeah. and we've become exceedingly good at wiping the slate clean. <laughs>
0: and so, and so to see this country because it's such a young country and it's a country that seemed to be ascendant at the time that takes such such care in things that no chinese person would ever even care about is to him is something that i he finds that a lesson worth learning that there's something whatever it is that drives americans to do that and he just assumes that it's our young history he sees a value in that especially for a country that needs to have a sense of tradition it's you know it's it's one of those things it's to me it's one of the most enlightening paragraphs of this because there's times where when he a lot of people want to take this as this is a damning indictment of america and there are aspects of it in there but I see a lot of this of of somebody, a young patriot for his own country, figuring out how do I bring tradition back into my own land.
2: This kind of strikes me as just a response to Western archaeology, and you know the role that museums play in Western countries generally. I mean, you, you don't have to go very far from China to encounter this. I mean. The Russians have a robust history of museums and preserving, you know, things that we would consider relatively small and insignificant aspects of history into a place that puts them on display. And that can also be found throughout all of Europe. But I think this is this just might be like the first time he's ever experienced this firsthand seeing how sure. preserved these artifacts are. I, I think if, you know, if you take an honest look at Western uh, historical tradition and archaeology and museums, you'd, you'd find this is pretty prevalent. This isn't uniquely American.
0: Well, th- well here, and he, I think he's also grappling with the, with a weird contrast here. So think about, think about it this way, you know, at this time, undoubtedly, you know, cause the, the Soviet union was collapsing and China was kind of having its own little like internal crisis as well. And so the United States is undoubtedly like entering the stage of being kind of the unipower, the, the, the sole superpower on stage, with the two other biggest countries being the Soviet Union and China. How many museums can you think of in the United States that have Chinese objects in it? Thousands, probably how many museums in china have american objects in it probably none it's a very, yeah, it's, a very weird, a good it's a very weird it's a very weird thing weird thing to think about when you talk about global powers here yeah
2: yeah i never considered that
0: so and i think that's kind of like the weird feeling he's kind of getting where he's trying to figure out what is china's place going to be and what does it mean to be like in contrast to America, maybe I'm reading into this, but also there's the sense like, is that, is the American model a sustainable one? Because it, 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 it just flew completely in the face of how empires would have functioned with the way that empires express, you know, their hard and soft power. America is, a, is an odd example, and that part of that's technological because of how, you know, we're in a completely different environment, a completely different technological society now, but it it flies in the face of how mo- you would cons- – it, 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 people even have trouble conceptualizing America as an empire, even though we – by every definition, by every metric, we are an empire. But it's hard to think of the United States as an actual empire in any kind of classical definition of it. Hmm. So in uh, – I don't know why I had this now here from part I think I just wanted to make sure I have a quote from every single section I had from three in general America's Americans do not feel the need to explain anyone who thinks they know the true transmission. However, in times of crisis, people interpret these temp, tenets differently. Probably should. I don't remember what why I put that there. I, I think it was just something about the aspect of why. OK, so this is the section on. On political creed oh basically he he finds it interesting that americans don't feel any need to explain their their political creed that just kind of it should be intuitive and just you know be obvious i think you see that a lot that now remember why i put that note there freedom when the one thing he seems to find odd is that americans just assume like well of course you want freedom and democracy yeah it's just like it's just like those are those are the good things those are the capital g good things why would i need to explain that to you yeah,
1: which I, I think is basically what I was saying. Where we take these ideas and they just become unexamined after a while. It just becomes an assumption. Like Americans have all these prepackaged assumptions to just carry around with them.
2: Well, he does mention talking about like these when he he's going over like this historical view of the founding fathers. Uh, he makes a point to to note that uh, the notions that were being proposed as a basis of revolution and were popular amongst those supportive of the idea of revolution were only ideals they weren't concrete uh promises for what people would receive in terms of you know a change in their life uh i guess beyond the you know obvious notion of a different political representation system But the abstract ideas of freedom and liberty were still effective, I guess, means of propaganda to convince people that this is a a fight worth
0: having. Yeah, I have I actually and this might be one of the quotes you're thinking of here. This is from section five. When I was in Annapolis, I saw a handwritten copy of the U.S. Constitution, a few sheets of yellow paper, but how could it play such a big role? The foundation is definitely beyond these yellow papers. It must not be thought that those who framed the Constitution had all the toiling masses in mind and were framing the Constitution for them. What they had in mind at that time was, first of all, to maintain their interests, a new ruling group. The popularization of the spirit of the Constitution was a long time coming. Now, Wang doesn't cite charles beard in this work from what i at least not in the three sections i read but i mean that is essentially the point that charles beard was making in the economic interpretation of the constitution the constitution by the way the constitution was never a popular document it's like the americans have this have this mythology one that's been imposed upon them that the constitution is is our our founding document it was you know you know a, a more perfect union and that this is something that was very would have been very popular Despite the debates on it, but that's no, because when to be honest, when Americans talk about the Constitution, when they talk about, you know, my Constitution, they're not talking about the Constitution, they're talking about the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights was never an intended part of that document. That was a concession that the Federalists and Hamilton and his cronies made in order to get the Constitution to incorporate the United the, the United States of America. The people who the people who most cite my constitution, what they're actually saying is my bill of rights. And the people the bill of rights was just was created by the people who were opposed to the idea of even giving these people rights. That was just what they threw out there to get to prevent things from like Shays rebellion from happening again. It's like, well, let's give them let's throw them a few bones and be done with it. Give them "quote unquote" rights, and then we can finally have our little economic, you know, our little uh, our, our document that basically enshrines our economic interests. Yeah, and allows us to be elites. Yeah, that's
1: that's like the Jazz Hands point about the Constitution essentially just being a big financial document.
0: Well, and that, I mean, that's the Charles Beard. Like, I mean, like in Jazz Hands, got that from Charles Beard. Like, that was the book. That was if you ever if you've listened to FDN for a long time, the turning point was when Jazz Hands read the economic interpretation of the of the constitution by charles beard that was the when he when he really started digging into the founding fathers and understands like oh wait like this whole mythology doesn't actually make sense when you look at what they're what they were actually about you know there you can sometimes find in the writings like certain ideals and and notions they paid homage to but fundamentally like these these were elites that were pursuing their own interests, and the Constitution reflects that. And for a for a foreign scholar like Wang Huning, he can he like because he he doesn't have to you know pay any mind to the mythology of America. He can actually examine that now. Very few, I think, very few people actually do pay attention to that, just because it's just taken as as rote that this is what what America is about. But there's always been this tension from the very start between the rulers and the ruled in this country. We had the Chase Rebellion. We had the Whiskey Rebellion. These things are, like for the yeomen, for the regular people in this country, they, they actually did uprise quite a bit against their own government. Like, this idea that we were all like on board with America from the very start, is like, no, that's not the case. That's, <laughs> Americans have always been a, a very grumbly, albeit somewhat compliant sort of people.
1: Are we ready to move on to part three?
0: Yeah. Uh. Actually, the last thing I wanted to say on part two is, um. I guess that kind of wrapping this up, Wayne cites, cites the reason for the continuing existence of the Constitution is because only the content has changed but not the form. And this, I, I, I think it's worth kind of staying on this for a second because this illustrates the very fungible quality that liberalism has because he's, this is where I think he starts to echo some of Carl Schmitt's Critiques, Uh, the key problem is that no one actually has the power to change this constitution and maintaining it and interpreting it is the only way forward. Perhaps it is a general rule that if there is still some power to change the constitution and the political system, then the society has not reached a steady state politically and socially in terms of governance. And this kind of reminded me a bit of, uh, there's a blog called Hesiod's Corner, that summarizes a lot of Schmidt's critiques of, of liberalism. There is a paradox in how Schmidt understands the liberal conception of the state. As he says, liberalism offers no positive theory of the state insofar that the state in liberalism is merely acting as that construction from the social contract to avoid the state of nature. We do not find fulfillment. In the concept of the political because man is not a political animal by nature in liberal anthropological theory. Therefore, the state only really exists for benign hedonism that advances self-pleasure among individuals. As Schmidt writes, liberalism has attempted only to tie the political to the ethical and to subjugate it to economics. It has produced a doctrine of the separation and balance of powers, i.e. a system of checks and controls of state and government. This cannot be characterized as either a theory of state— or basic political principle that is to say the theory of the state if you can even call it that in liberalism is one that advances the cause of consumeristic econ- econom- economism and i won't i won't read it any further from that but to me like this gets to the heart of where of the ideas that wang hunning trying to form within this work where he doesn't you can see on some level, that he sees on some level that the American system is economically successful, but at what cost and can it be sustainable? And he obviously does not want to see that happen to his own country. He does not want to see the non culture become so dominant and have it do to the Chinese people what it did to American people.
1: Yeah. Um, part three has some interesting things. Uh, it's, it's titled colorful national character and s- section heading one here is international people. And it's got this, uh, quote in the United States, the masses are passively cosmopolitan, social, economic, cosmopolitan interactions have force Americans to be cosmopolitan, which made me remember a interesting statistic about Americans is that on average, they move about 11 or 12 times in their, over the course of their lives. That's a lot. Like Americans That's, are constantly moving around, even within their own country. They're always moving like they, they have essentially become nomadic. They, they are cosmopolitan nomads. And he, he also goes on to talk about how Americans have a hard time dealing with the concept of a foreigner because they themselves are essentially foreigners in their own country half the time.
0: He said, yeah, he says in the first part, Americans may be called international people, although most people do not have the sense to join the world voluntarily. Their social and economic mechanisms have brought them to this diverse world by force. Americans' world consciousness is, on the whole, much weaker than that of those people whom Americans or Westerners regard as backward and ignorant. In recent years, American scholars have repeatedly called out the young generation's woeful lack of world knowledge – which is unbecoming of a great nation. People in developing or backward countries, on the other hand, aspire to prosperity and development to the outside world and instead have strong feelings about the world and possess more knowledge.
2: I have to wonder if this attitude has really changed over the years because of the internet. I mean, I could find out anything I want to about any, you know, group of people on the planet in – under a minute just by typing in the name of this ethnic group and reading Wikipedia. Uh, I think
0: that's, I think that's why it's made so many millennials and zoomers into, into young, into young Madison grants, anthropological racists.
2: Oh, you know, I, it's definitely a key component. I mean, you have to have exposure to have opinion, uh, for the most part. Um, and the, you know, most basic level exposure can, can really happen through the internet. Uh, but the idea that you know oh you don't know about the world that makes you uh, a backwards people or that makes you uh out of touch with the times and you know undesirable i think that's gone away by and large i mean nobody really expects that of people anymore uh, i mean you know you have this idea of diversity and that's just it's whatever like bullshit uh pig culture that the uh, mainstream wants to force out it could be whatever it wants to, and they can just call it diverse. Uh, but it doesn't—it doesn't really mean anything about uh, knowing what what life is like in Vietnam or Thailand. It's uh, whatever disgusting stuff they want to put on television today in America, you know, from a, a non-white person.
0: Yeah, it's um. This is this is the section as well where you can definitely tell like, because he's trying to he's trying to parse this out. And I think having a, a healthy understanding of what composes the elites versus who composes the non elites kind of clarifies some of the, the questions that Wong has in this entire section. And Americans have always been kind of a frontier people, but we're we're in a everything everything that he kind of notes has has gotten worse because on some level having the internet has made us much more intimately aware of our problems and disconnected as well because we can look up all the stuff we can learn about these other people and just find it wanting it's like okay i can I can read a Wikipedia article on the Hmong people that actually doesn't really endear me to them. It doesn't like learning about these other people.
2: No, doesn't, th- this my this doesn't is, that's do actually, anything for you. That's actually my go-to example of a race I I shouldn't know exists. <laughs> <laughs> the Hmong? I, yes, I bring them up uh many times when saying like I shouldn't know what a Mong is. Uh, they should still be you know they might as well be mole people to me that have sprung from the the earth. That I you know I just they're from some far-flung jungle that really there's no good excuse why I have any contact with.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, you hear liberals talk sometimes, like, when when they have no, you know, when they have to make some kind of point because they're put in a spot. So all they have are really gay platitudes. The One of the most common ones you'll hear is, like, well, well we're all just people, man, which says absolutely nothing. And... You start to learn about all these other people. Yeah, we are all just people. And I don't like these other people the more I learn about them. <laughs> they don't, like I, I am I I I guarantee you I am more much more aware of how other diverse groups of people are, what their histories are, what their traditions are than the average libtard is. To say nothing of the average American whom I have less contempt for than than, than the libtard, but like learning about these people has not I, I'm it's nice to have that knowledge, but it doesn't give me any it doesn't enlighten my life in a way that makes me understand myself and my people any better. In fact, actually it just gives me a greater awareness of how much different I am from other people. But knowing about them doesn't impart some kind of knowledge upon myself. And I think that's something that he, he notes kind of with the way – with the non-culture – and it's not a term he uses. This is something I'm, a term I'm using, but the, non- the non-culture that seems so prevalent in America, when I have this contrast of my non-culture with all these other groups of people I've learned about, it just makes me stronger – much more strongly want to have a culture. I want to know right. who my people are. I want to have a better understanding of them. I've learned about all these other people and I find them wanting. I want to know I want to know about my people.
1: This section uh you you mentioned that it talks about
0: demystification
1: and the demystification part is is quite interesting especially for somebody oh, I love that. It's one, it's probably my favorite yeah. part in
0: section 3. Yeah. Well, we can we can just skip right to that. I mean, like a lot because a lot of section three, he kind of breaks down these these different Like he tries to analyze these different components of what he sees as the the American character is. But it gets really interesting. Like so, I believe it's um. Yeah, it's section three here. So there is little mystification in children's education, which is a mechanism for non-mystical socialization. That's that's the paragraph I have highlighted. (laughs) Americans – yeah, this one stands out. Americans have almost no belief in ghosts. Americans invent and conceive of many ghosts, probably more than any other country in the world, but do not believe in ghosts. Children – have no concept of ghosts, and during Halloween, children dress up as all kinds of ghosts and move around the neighborhood. Americans grow up with mentality that ghosts are not scary, but that people are the real scary ones. In some societies, the opposite is true. People are not scary. Ghosts are scary. It will certainly be interesting to discuss what the consequences of these two different creeds will be.
1: So that's a very interesting thing. To especially you got to consider like this guy's from China, and China has very intricate and long history of of uh the concept of the ghost types of ghosts uh ancestor worship, all of that stuff like the, the, in that it's regard really
2: built into their architecture
1: yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> like the whole way that their society is designed and planned is is influenced and in many ways outright dictated by their belief in ghosts.
0: And I'll give, I'll give like a European kind of comparison to this cuz I Americans who are who are into learning about other cultures that often bring this this little factoid up but the Icelandic people a, a lot of them still have either a active or a passive belief in what's called the hidden folk which are, you know, basically elves, and they supposedly construct, you know, like they do construction and road work based around not disturbing the homes of the hidden folk. And however you want to interpret the sincerity of that belief, Americans find it fascinating because it shows respect for a, a hidden world the japanese have something similar as well where they they where spirits can inhabit even inanimate objects and americans find that well we'll find, can find will find that stuff fascinating because we don't ha- really have an analog for that there are some americans that do kind of like have belief in spirits and in the like but one thing you'll note with like with the way our in our culture and even our religion it tends to be it tends to be very intellectual and very dismissive of actual spiritual phenomenon like religion's meant to be like a an intellectual exercise of some kind and it doesn't really account for the the mystical aspects that are supposed to inhabit us as human beings, which is why I think th- I think this is what drives a lot of conversions towards Eastern Orthodoxy in the United States because th- there's such a dearth of actual spiritual mystical experience in the United States.
2: Well, heck, I mean, speaking to to this demystification, we look at the you know the niche hobby, uh, but still, you know, practiced hobby of ghost hunting. <laughs> and all that is is a process of demystification. We have uh oh, yeah. you know, yeah. special exactly. infrared cameras. We have uh electric magnetic uh activity readers. Uh we have what is it called? The Jacobs ladder, which is like a electrical current that runs up to antenna, and you know, we we present these like objects to you know, air, to ghosts in places we believe to be haunted, in a an attempt to demystify the uh, their existence and our existence uh, and our connections uh, to them. That we we build these little gadgets to facilitate the communication between us, and uh, yes. we try to interpret what we've we've uh, collected in these ghost hunting expeditions in a way that you know makes sense and actually has meaning as opposed to uh a belief that these things are just unknowable and largely uh cannot be understood,
1: yes, yeah, so it just becomes another technological project, just another it is
2: very much so
1: just a more of that instrumental rationality
0: yeah it's kind of like a I, like a lot of you you have to imagine some things that some of heidegger's critiques of technology. Was almost like looking at the American aspect of it, it's like how do I, like when when technology reduces everything to how can I get the the maximum yield from this little like unit of resource, like that's like Americans basically take that and run with that, and we take that even into what's supposed to be the religious and spiritual sphere, is like how do I how do I maximize my religious yield, and
2: how that, do I, yeah, I wish somebody. Exp- uh, told Mr. Huning the story of the one uh, inventor who created a device he thought he could use to prove the existence of the soul by measuring the the human body at upon death to uh, demonstrate a difference in body weight after the soul leaves uh, upon the expiration of the of the person in question. I mean, talk about the innovation in informing the demystification process. It's like I can. I'll try to measure the this how much a soul weighs when it leaves your body when you die. I've built this special bed that will take your body weight, and you know once your heart stops beating, we'll take your uh, measure your body weight again, and that's how much the soul weighs.
0: That is probably the most American expression of religion I've ever heard. Of trying basically weighing the soul.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah, that's right up there with like blessing the Ford Ranger.
0: <laughs> well there's no i, I you're referred to the the, or, the, or, the orthodox bless everything there's so many pictures of orthodox priests blessing rifles and guns and large weapons like that's just like you, like you ask an orthodox priest to bless an object he'll bless it because basically that's just how like well that's what drives like that's the funny thing is like the, the american the way an american like the the you know the americanist like expression of this the way that would function is like well like if if I bless this thing, I have I have developed this level of of blessing rating. I, I have um, plus like two the, holy damage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be plus. Yeah, exactly. Like my gun has instead of like my gun just being blessed by God, my gun now has plus two holy damage to it. Like that's how what Americans. The there is yeah.
2: and there is a difference there. I, I insist on that point that yeah the conception of what it means to bless something is it's very different when it's. You know the idea that okay, this object is blessed. I keep it with me, and now it reminds me of God, and you know when I need it most. uh, I have faith that God will look after me, and I can use this tool well, as opposed to like stat maxing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean that's this time of the year. I I have a a certain tradition where I put up photos and paintings of my mom, and now I have a, a, a photo of a friend of mine who died of COVID and October 31st I put out food and drink you know for the dead I don't set up like infrared cameras around this this altar site just to try to pick up paranormal activity this is just a thing you do and you remember the people that were close to you that have died this time of the year like, it's just a thing you do you don't want to like over examine oh, it
2: now, now you're making you just reminded me of the uh, metaphysical implications of the elf on a shelf <laughs> <laughs> you this you'll little talisman, this. This, this talisman that we put on a shelf. That and that's how Santa knows if you've been good or bad, because this object is watching you, and you know that's that's how information is transmitted.
0: you so, you appreciate this McNabb. Basically, what what the American is is like. Americans by nature are just min-maxing power gamers. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's it's, true, that's though. what we are.
1: It's. I mean, why they, I mean why yeah, where's the so lie? They move. They move a lot, and one of the reasons they cite is, "Well, I wanted to get a better house." So, well, does the house that you live in, that you currently own, does that not have significance?
0: Well and he so what we, so what's the problem like I mean I think you know we're trying to illustrate the problem of of this demystification with these excited examples but what is the problem with it? like here's what Wang Kuning says is the problem demystification has the tendency to make people lack authority neutrality self-sufficiency self-confidence a society in which everyone harbors the idea that everything must be must not be finally believed can be the greatest driving force or the greatest destructive force. This is what I mean by the conundrum of human society. We can't have mystification, and we can't have no mystery. Yeah.
2: Well, he also uses this as a way to, uh, uh, to demonstrate how sort of the cult of personality doesn't quite exist in the same way in America as it does elsewhere and historically um i mean he he oh
0: yeah he, he talks about saying ten- done with the sanctification part
2: well before he gets to sanctification he he uses the idea of political cartoons uh to temper the point before he goes to sanctification because i i think he really wants to be exacting about this balance uh between the sanctified and the deified and he says as much but uh, he he sort of alludes to that uh before getting to the sanctification uh paragraph or the section uh, under demystification and he says um, non-mystical aspects of culture plays an undervalued role in maintaining political a political system political cartoons amply demonstrate this political stars are often protagonists of political cartoons uh, in the case of the 1988 presidential campaign, political cartoonist Joe Sharpnack drew a picture of a child rolling around in a bed, crying and screaming, saying, I want to be vice president. I want it. I want it. Another person who looks like Bush holds a flag and says, OK, OK, look, daddy made you a new coat. This is a satire of Republican presidential candidates Bush and Quayle. The non of politics is also seen in the press. The press is very active in political coverage. Scandals such as Watergate are made by the press. Uh, around Contra, the Department of the Defense, bribery case, all related to journalists and politics. Like all other activities, there are not many people interested. A candidate for Congress has to drive their own car around to canvas for votes. The The big thing about that, uh, to me, was the point about political cartoons, that
0: mm-hmm.
2: if in a traditional sense of what a cult of personality looks like, there is no room for this.
0: Yeah well I mean, the in the infant i mean it's not even like there's that but it's also the in the infantilization of politics is going to be very odd to us like to the chinese i mean you can see mm. this as well with the way of how they negatively react like they they always try to like say like oh so like it's like these Chinese netizens these Chinese nationalists but it's like they, they take offense to the idea of reducing their the leader of their country to that of of uh, Winnie, uh, Winnie the Pooh, the Pooh yeah. to a to a cartoon character like it's an infantilization of your nation's leader because he's supposed to be like he is the global face of your country and that's like that's such an odd thing if you think if you try to think about it from the chinese perspective that is an odd thing to actually do like be, like forget the offensive part of that i mean like the fact that amer like a large swath of americans constantly portrayed their leaders as like some form of of like a retarded invalid or a giant orange baby or what have you like that that this is a tradition a sense. demystifying tradition in the united states is an odd thing to people who aren't us
1: the United States is sort of like this big green barge full of screaming savages. They're just waving like various slogans and flags and yelling and screaming as the green barge just gets bigger and picks up more steam. Like that's it, it does seem very incoherent if you're not part of it.
0: Yeah, and I I think this is actually why a lot of people are taken aback by how intelligent and friendly many Americans can be. Because
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm terrified you this, of the yeah, image yeah. we
0: have of us.
2: No, it, it's a great point. and And uh, whenever you hear like horror stories about what tourists might do in other countries and how that reflects upon us, I mean it it adds to this opinion that people in other countries would have of Americans and, you know, when actually you interact with somebody on a face-to-face basis, like in a, you know, personal setting, what you get could be widely different and often is. Uh, I guess it has a lot to do with our public and private facing selves and how we, how we interact with people and on a contextual basis, you know, you, you interact with somebody on the bus differently than you do, like, at a bar. Yeah. I think that's true for um, a lot of people.
1: So he he makes a point about sacralization, sanctification. Yes. The distinction between this and, like, what happens in actual religion. Like, we, we sanctify and sacralize things, but we do it in a very cultish fashion, and it's not religious. Uh, George Floyd because yeah he's
0: got one he's got one quote here uh a short one the american nation is a race that is very susceptible to emotional impulses and a people that is very receptive to external things yeah which he's kind of remarking on like what he what he seems to find is like a lack of an inner of robust inner life and which is why it makes us prone to like the george floyd example that you're that you're citing is that the this lack of this lack of 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 a true rich inner life lends one to having an emotional impulse and sacralizing external things yeah He's got he's got this large passage here. The sanctification naturally manifests itself in other ways as well. Football games, for example, are actually sanctified. People are not there to watch the ball, but to see what each believes in and embraces. The whole process of the game, from the playing of the national anthem to the ceremonies, to the appearances, to the game, to the performances at the break in the stadium, goes beyond the meaning of the game itself. For example, the event under the Statue of Liberty to celebrate the bicentennial of the country was lively big and not a normal celebration in nature with a certain flavor of sanctification. This is the work of the government. The government is often the promoter of sanctification, as in the case of the military and the sanctific- sanctification of the military is obvious one thing i i noticed was like how much especially this happened very prevalently in the aughts military like having the military at your actual sporting event like think about how odd like we talk about like about we we, we make fun of like north koreans and the like, and their and their military marches like we have military people yeah like on we, display at our sporting events
2: we have football games where like paratroopers drop onto the field from airplanes <laughs> yeah like you know, you how, know, like how the can Blue you make fun of like
0: flying over an nascar race <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> how can you how can you make fun of like the chinese and the north koreans as being some kind of like some cold war relic militarized society when you do this at your at your at your liberal capitalist sporting events
2: it's this too what many kind of messages it's, it's the concentration you know i think yeah. it's It's got to be something with the balance and also missiles. Missiles make a huge difference. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's funny, but it's
0: true. Yeah. This is especially evident in the American attitude toward military victories and toward those who have fallen in battle. There is a curious Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., where every man who died in battle has left his name. I like that he finds that odd. For those (laughs) killed in action, official funerals are held with pomp and circumstance. The government's attitude toward the space shuttle is also an excellent example. When the space shuttle Challenger exploded, the government gave the astronauts who died high praise and honor, seeing them as dedicated men who pioneered the American space spirit the successful launch of the space shuttle discovery which the government saw as a triumph of the american spirit had significance beyond the technological breakthroughs in astronautics That's the american point. nation la- yeah the american nation lacks the cult of ghosts and gods replacing them with the first two cults which i i, I skipped ahead the, the first two cults is hero worship and achievement worship
2: again yeah, it's, he, it's, he prefaced this this with like a sort of like weird like contradictory point about achievement including things that are abject failures like the Vietnam and the Challenger I think that's what strikes him most is that it's a celebration of the bad parts you know you putting dead people's names on a memorial is like the thing you wanted to avoid happening yeah, like but that's the people thing. Dying.
1: It's like, like the American ingrates they celebrate the sacrifice of Americans like they have been burned on the funeral pyre they have been sent into the machine and ground up for the, the sole cause of like Americanism, whatever the fuck that's supposed to be.
0: Yeah. And it's the, you you also, you also have the contrast with the way that the Chinese experience would be because I mean, like, you know, the Chinese would like, would have honored like people, like the type of people who were with Mao on the long March, for instance, and that, and that type of thing. But the Chinese don't really build Memorials with individualized names to the different people that have been a part of their, you know, of, like of this achievement worship. They have, like, they're a traditional society, which also kind of like means, like, you have to have, like, there's like a keep thy heart small kind of aspect. To that, where you do have some figures that become well known, but they earn like to them they would have, like either through and through aristocratic means or through like you know being blessed by the gods type means like they become known. What, but the idea what, of like taking a this minute, memorial and minute. putting every single name on that is what? What, what if kind of what odd? If, what if you were waving a banana
1: around asking change for twenty while you were high on drugs? <laughs>
0: well, that's clearly. That he, clearly, you he must build multiple memorials to that. <laughs> I mean, th- think about, like, if he, if
1: he had come to America, like, over the last two years, what he would have <laughs> had to write down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you'd still see the same, a similar sentiment. He might ask, why does he get a statue? He died. He didn't win. George <laughs> Floyd lost to that encounter. What was so noble about it?
0: so we can we we can talk a little bit more but i think we can kind of start to wrap it up here because the rest of section three he talks about different aspects of american society like the sexual revolution like which i think the the point like we don't need to belabor certain points they're kind of going to be obvious that you know just he's noticing all the different aspects that are that are the problem with liberalism you know what? It, what it kind of comes down to is that he he's when he talks about liberalism, he kind of sees it as this reductionist philosophy, which is going to w- w- way we would say it is that it just results in the only thing that matters is money and cummies. I mean, the most American phrase might as well be "ass cash or grass." No one rides for free. I mean, that might as well just be <laughs> the Ameri- you know the American slogan. But there was one thing that <laughs> kind of gave me a chuckle when i read when i read this this is from section part five section five americans have been in a privileged position for a long time almost since world war one when its privileged position was formed in 70 years the united states has had several generations and those born after world war ii are now in their 40s this generation of americans is in the atmosphere of america first And a psychological stereotype has been (laughs) I know (laughs) I I, I literally bolded that this generation (laughs) of Americans is in the all of these things have happened before and will happen again. And a psychological stereotype has been formed. As a result, the United States is also a nation that cannot afford to lose. Technological superiority has gradually developed into national superiority, and they cannot imagine that any nation can surpass them. Japan's rapid rise in the post-war decades has led to unusually rapid developments in the high, in the field of high technology, which has surpassed the United States in some aspects, such as electronic products and automobiles. Japanese products flooded into the U.S. market, and Japanese money flooded into the United States. Some people say that a lot of Hawaii's real estate fell into the hands of the Japanese because the Japanese have come to buy houses, so the price of land has soared. Americans are not convinced of this, often disdain the Japanese, and are always talked about with a contemptuous attitude. Americans for a long time do not want to recognize the success of Japan. Harvard professor Afu Yi spent a lot of effort to make Americans understand this point. His Japan ranked first woke up Americans like a dream, a similar situation I think Americans will encounter again. And that ended up being a rather predictable, though prescient uh, analysis as that's, I mean, is there anything in that that doesn't sound familiar to what, you know, just just swap out China or Chinese for Japan and and Japanese? And is that is that paragraph any different than what things are like right now? Yeah, not to my ears. And, and then you and you have a movement of people who call themselves America First. So I mean, like like I said, the cycle the cycle begins anew. The last it's, it's thing
1: he was talking about prostitution. The debate around prostitution essentially is incoherent in American culture due to sexual liberation. Like to to the Chinese, like uh, prostitution means prostitution. But to Americans, like no no no, it's it's, it's sex work. It's it's sex work. You should get a statue if you do it.
0: Well, I also I, I guess if we're talking about that on the, the sexual freedom aspect, because he he spends a bit of time talking about sexual freedom in the United States, and this paragraph is just hilarious. If you just if you like if you don't understand the Jewish aspect of our culture. I can understand why you might be confused. One thing is certain, Westerners and Americans today have a much different view of sexuality than they did in the 18th century, even before the two world wars. Traditional Western concepts and ethics also emphasize women's chastity and self-respect and a strict set of behavioral rules for women. Old European culture was more concerned with this. Today it is quite different. After World War II, these ideas changed rapidly and are not what they used to be. Americans referred to the old concept of sexuality as the rigid Victorian standard of Sexuality. The core of the standard was that sex should be restricted to marriage, that prostitution was undoubtedly a sin, that pornography was morally depraved, and that homosexuality was evil. Today, these ideas have changed. Naturally, they cannot be said to have disappeared as there are still many people who still maintain traditional ideas.
1: It must be very interesting to look at that from the perspective of a, a Chinese person with such an old culture that has such old traditions that have been around for thousands of years to like see – this very very rapid like upset to like a, a traditional way of living
0: oh yeah i mean he, i, he for, I so... forgot like this, this, go ahead oh, uh, this, this is the quote i actually wanted to do the question is why was it why there was sexual liberation after the 1960s but not before is there any, <laughs> any logic connection between this and the high level material production oh uh, there's a different there's a different aspect to that wong but go ahead nike I,
2: I was gonna say he throughout this he, he has a good way of uh well, at least a very interesting way of having one section uh present a valid and true point about American culture and then the next section being just as valid and true but also like contradictory to the previous section because after the uh sexual liberation section he has a whole section devoted to loneliness and its prevalence in American society. Uh, even detailing what, you know, he didn't have the term for, but was essentially a cat lady.
0: Oh, I, I actually have that whole section here blocked out. We can, we can actually, I think, end on, on that, uh, on that section. Do you want to continue with that?
2: Yes. I I find it really interesting the way he, just in the presentation, this order of presentation that, you know, you can have so many valid points about the opening sexuality of the United States and then also detail the seeming mm-hmm. rise of uh, loneliness amongst Americans that despite sexual liberation, loneliness uh, has become more of a problem. And, you know, this is all boilerplate information to us, but the fact that he was able to recognize it uh, and you know, present these these contradictions out back then was is very telling about how long standing this issue has been and how well people have recognized it. All this whole time, it just hasn't gotten any better.
0: I I have the, I'll, I'll just read the whole section, the whole anecdote that he has about this. Uh, American loneliness is either superficial or deep and manifests itself in different forms. It is also a disease derived from all developed societies. A friend told me a story that vividly reflects the loneliness of an American. The main character of the story is a woman of almost 50 years old. She came from a wealthy family, married to a professor, and then divorced. Her children have grown up and are living independently outside the home. She now lives alone in a house. She has no job and earns some money by working short hours. Due to her mental Depression, she often drinks heavily. When she drinks, she becomes delirious, crying and screaming, which is naturally caused by her mental loneliness. But what made people feel that she was lonely was not her situation, but people's attitude toward her. The friend who was living in her house was often worried about the woman's condition. He called her children. Her children said that it was her business and they could not interfere with it. If she felt that she needed to go to the hospital or to the police, it was up to her to decide and they could not decide. In effect, they were saying that they couldn't control it, but just let it happen. When he called her best friend, the answer was the same, saying there was nothing he could do. Although the best friend, but also cannot exceed the And This is where the translation has problems. Although the best friend. But also cannot exceed the authority. The friend often can only watch her drunken madness helpless. That best friend of hers said she is trying to treat me like a mother and pamper me from the bottom of her heart. That friend despised her, too. The question is, why was she like that? It was a deep seated loneliness. Her loneliness was not only within herself, but also in the way society treated her on the outside. She was alone in society and society was alone in her. This is the situation that a lonely American encounters.
1: Yeah, he he goes into more detail on this later in the text about uh, individualization in America, essentially turning us into like a bunch of highly isolated individuals, particularly in old age. Like as, as you move along your life path in the United States, you become more and more isolated and eventually you have no one. And we don't we don't raise our children to take care of us later as we age. Like we don't have that perspective, which apparently is a big thing in the eastern uh, part of the world.
0: Oh, and I'll say I'll cite an example. Is it, uh, this is you can definitely see the the sentiments of of an Asian within this text with the treatment of the of the elderly. Now, South Korea, the Korean society is sometimes called even more Confucianist than than the Chinese are. I don't have any opinion on that specifically, but the the regard you're supposed to have for your elders is was was very ingrained in their society. And around the time that I was there, you started to have viral videos of and that caused kind of like a cultural conversation within South Korea of like uh, young girls on on a bus basically disrespecting old women. And to us as an Americans, like we might say, like oh, that, like all oh, that, that you know, what you know, that young person is rude and you know needs to be slapped upside her head and all that. But we don't understand to the level at which that that caused a lot of concern within Korean society. They had were having a national debate on that. Like imagine like, the idea. Imagine the idea of, of America having a national debate on the way we treat our elderly. <laughs> like that's. Or like and the, the, fact that the idea been-
2: just like some like black chicks are like being rude on a bus. Never going to happen on a national debate. You can't have that
0: conversation. Yeah, it it might offend Americans on an individual level, but Americans still have this. Well, I mean, one, we're cowed and we don't, you know, we're afraid to speak our minds, actually speak our minds. But two, there is also this residual sense of, well, you know, you don't like the principle of it, but we don't have this idea that as a culture, as a people, as a culture, we're supposed to. To revere or have respect for our elders, and so for for a Chinese person, this idea of I mean, and you they do talk about this in Asian societies of like the, the lonely deaths of the uh, you know of the of their elderly, but like to see it on the American side of it as well is, is going to be a deeply disturbing thing. They are seeing it happen in their own societies, and they don't like it. And when they see the kind of like the advanced or peculiar or, or peculiar form of it in the in the United States, they don't, you know, they don't want that to happen to their own countries. I mean, Japan has a situation like they don't actually know what their elderly population is anymore because of the amount of people who are basically just like they're officially on the books as being alive. But nobody actually knows because nobody's been checking in on them. Like, I remember there was like a story years ago of uh, that the, the that the elderly population in Japan might be lower than uh, than is actually reported because the amount of old people that have died off and weren't reported because people are still collecting their pensions. Uh.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I have to wonder what these people think of our boomer hatred as a you know America's latest favorite meme.
0: <laughs> well, the traditionalists they would find it they would find it deeply offensive, but if they're, I mean. The fact is like they're like at least on the, i can't speak the chinese experience i just don't i just don't know the chinese but the with with the koreans you're seeing very much this this tension within their within their culture they call their current society um joe sun hell joe Sun's like an old term for korea they call mm-hmm. it joe sun hell the society they're living in and you have movies like uh parasite which are so commenting on yeah, which is it's a good movie. I I actually wa- watched it um sometime. I think it was like earlier this year, or last year. I don't remember when I saw it. It is. But yeah, it's actually I highly recommend it. You you can you can enjoy it from a if you don't even if you don't know anything about uh, Korean culture, but if you do know even a, have a cursory understanding of it, it's you can see the social commentary that he's making. Like where like this deep feeling is is coming from of. You don't like Koreans are you know they want to have the sense that we're taking, you know, that we are the Korean people. Like they take a lot of pride in Korean achievements, but then they don't seem to like each other at all. Like in that they seem to have no regard for one another. And that's an odd like think about that from like a nationalist perspective, how contradictory and odd that is. You want to take great pride in achievement that your country is ascendant it has become this, you know, this global powerhouse and that people are able to live these wealthy, wonderful lives, but then you don't actually care about any of the other people in your country. And you're yeah. more invested in like in your own personal, you know, middle class like middle class, upper middle class, upper class psychodramas and these two things are are in complete contradiction to one another. I mean, as we as nationalists understand this problem completely, which is why we have like a much more robust critique of it. But for people who live in these liberal capitalist societies, there's these inherent contradictions in it that cause a lot of problems. And that's like, I mean, that's I guess we can end this this episode on on that point. Like that's what and. Maybe we'll read ahead and see like how much more there is to say from this book. There is eight more sections in it. I don't know if – because we, we've said a lot. I don't know how much more there will be.
1: I think there's, there's a lot, a lot of
0: interesting stuff to further go along in it, Like there's yeah. Especially yeah, about we'll, the child reworking aspects. And we will cover that. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure out – we'll take a look at how the, uh, the we can break down the sections on that. But this is what this work is fundamentally about is how do you find an alternative – to to the system and whatever whatever people want to say about i don't have i don't really have an opinion like on dugan and i don't really have an opinion on the chinese in terms of like is what they're doing preferable is what they're doing you know like is it base like i don't have an opinion like that but what you see in societies like china and russia who want to be some kind of oppositional force to the united states but the previous ideologies of of maoist communism and soviet communism and all that stuff and 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 the fascist movements have been were crushed in the 20th century and they're they don't they're not they're they don't want to actually go to that but they want to take aspects of that what they're fundamentally trying to figure out is how do we provide a counterbalance to the united states how do we provide a viable alternative how do we deal with our own problems with our own within our own countries how do we deal with our own corrupt elites and i'm not praising any of the things they're doing i'm just pointing out they're trying to figure something out that does not have to be under the united states paradigm what it, what that turns out to be i feel like is in an evolving stage and you can but you can see the seeds of what, what at least what China is trying to figure out and what chi- what some of the Chinese are trying to do within this work that's my kind of thoughts in the first three sections
1: yeah yeah okay well, we've we've done i think enough material on that
0: yeah i'm just want to give you any last thoughts uh Nikkei, before I play the music uh
2: yes i think what these first three sections have really shown us is a he, he takes a lot of value of history and his own personal experience. Uh, I, I think there's, there's like a couple of select books that he's read from, and he sort of comments on them at length in different sections. But a lot of this is informed by his uh, direct experience as he's touring America. Uh, and he sees quite a lot in a short amount of time. And it's quite impressive that he's able to have, uh, a, such a large picture in such a short amount of time. I still feel like the picture is incomplete, but for what he's done in the, uh, it was six months. He was, uh, in America, right? In that short,
0: something like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. In that short amount of time, he saw a lot of different things and was able to comment on them you know, maybe not to the fullest, uh, extent that set satisfies us, but as a overview of, of America and a point in time with a healthy amount of context added throughout, uh, I think this has been a, uh, an impressive work and, uh, one that can still have a lot built on it, but as a basis for like a scope and overview of the United States, I think it's, uh, well done uh albeit some translation issues
0: all right well with that uh, we're gonna head out into the desert of the real